everyone, and welcome back to the Streaming Science Podcast. Streaming Science is a student-driven program that works to connect you with scientists to learn more about how science impacts all of us and our everyday lives. I'm Caroline Barnett, a master's student in the Department of Agricultural Education and Communication at the University of Florida, and your hostess for this episode. You're currently listening to our most recent series titled The State of the Scientific Enterprise During COVID-19, made in partnership with the UF-IFAS Research Genes Office. In this series, we explore the stories of scientists and their students about how COVID-19 has impacted their professional and personal lives. Over the past year, scientists and their graduate students have had to make some tough decisions about how to modify research practices and how to reopen research spaces safely. In the following interview, I spoke with Dr. Don Berenger, a professor of marine and disease ecology at the University of Florida, about his role, how he got to where he is today, the importance of disease pathology research, and impacts of COVID-19 this past year. Through this podcast, I hope you gain insight into Dr. Berenger's research, COVID-19 impacts on his life and research, and an overall sense of how scientists are moving forward to keep the scientific enterprise up and running during a global pandemic. With that being said, let's get started. Can you tell us more about the Emerging Pathogens Institute, Dr. Berenger? Sure. So the Emerging Pathogens Institute is a university-wide institute at the University of Florida. You know, this, the genesis of it was a recognition that, you know, particularly in Florida, pathogens, especially emerging pathogens of all sorts of organisms, be it you know, citrus, like citrus canker, citrus greening, or human pathogens, or you know, in my case, pathogens in marine organisms like crustaceans, like lobsters and crabs, are a particular issue in Florida, as they are around the globe. But it made a lot of sense to create an, an institute like that here in Florida and at the University of Florida to pull together all of the expertise we have across the university and bring that to bear and, and create something more impactful than the individual researchers might be on their own studying these things by bringing them together in a collaborative framework. And so that's, that's the institute I'm associated with. And a lot, you know, folks, you know, from across the university, across the state that are associated with the U.S. are associated with. Okay. And so what would your official position title be then? Um, I am still a professor of, of marine and disease ecology, but, but I have a joint appointment with the Emerging Pathogens Institute. So my tenure home at the University of Florida is in the School of Forest Resources and Conservation. But like 25% of my appointment is associated with the Emerging Pathogens Institute. So I have a marine lab right over by the main Emerging Pathogens Institute building where a lot of my research takes place. Okay, gotcha. Can you tell me more about your educational background and how you got interested into this particular field of study? Sure. So, you know, actually the second part of that question is probably the better place to start. I you know, I grew up on the, not terribly far from the Chesapeake Bay up in Maryland. And if anybody is from Maryland or familiar with Maryland, you know, where their state motto is Maryland is for crabs, right? And and so, I, you know, I, of course, I like to eat crabs when I was a kid. We'd go to big, big crab feasts and that sort of thing. Um, but I was always just fascinated with them from a biological standpoint. Like I would go fishing 
you know, hook and line fishing with my friends and with my dad. But, you know, when we go crabbing, I was always, that was always the most fascinating because the crabs were so interesting to me. And then, come on, I just loved being by the coast. And so when I, you know, when I, I, I was quite young, I, you know, marine biology was sort of the thing I wanted to do. So, and, and that's where it all began. It began with crabs. It began in, up in Maryland, but ultimately I found my way down to the University of Florida, and that's where I got my bachelor's degree. And during the course of getting my bachelor's degree, I was then sort of thinking about what I, my next step would be in becoming a marine biologist. And in, Mar- in Florida, you know, the blue crabs are here, but they're not sort of the thing as are lobsters. So spiny lobsters in Florida are what, you know, what, what people most are most familiar with when they think about crustaceans and what they go hunting for when they go, go diving out on a coral reef. So that's what I ended up starting my dissertation work on is working on spiny lobsters. And it was sort of serendipitous. And I went straight from my bachelor's degree to my PhD. I actually did my PhD at, at Old Dominion University in Virginia, but I did all my research on on the Caribbean spiny lobster. And, and during the course of that work, it was sort of a serendipitous finding that I discovered the, the first virus described from any lobster species in the world in the Caribbean spiny lobster. And so it, it really upended my dissertation and became a career-long interest in understanding not only this particular virus and how it, it drives the ecology and evolution of and, and interacts with humans and fisheries for the Caribbean spiny lobster, but sort of more broadly how pathogens do those same sorts of things, you know, affect the ecology, drive the ecology, drive the evolution of marine organisms, and then how those interactions are sort of mediated by changes in the environment, like climate change or changes resulting from human use, like human maybe abuse of the nearshore environment or fishing and how those interactions occur. That's certainly quite the find, and especially so early in your career and you had switched from undergrad straight to PhD. That's that's pretty cool. Normally, most people go from bachelor's to master's, then to PhD. Yeah, I, you know, I, and it, for me, I, you know, and I, when I always tell students that are interested in, in, you know, my advice on whether they should get their master's or go on for their PhD, because some go straight on, it really depends on how sure you are and what you want to because once you get your PhD, that is what you are known for. That's what your area of expertise is. And if you know 100% as an undergrad, maybe you've got some research experience and, you're, and you, you know, I want to be a molecular biologist or a marine molecular biologist working on plankton, then go for it. I mean, you know 100% that's what you want to do. You know, it makes some sense to sort of go straight for your PhD. But other times, folks are a little bit more unsure. They, they know they want to be, you know, marine ecologist or marine microbiologist, that means they're not quite sure what they want to do. So it's a good idea to get a master's then because then you can, you know, you can switch up and you can, you know, change directions a bit after your master's and, and, and refine what you do for your PhD. So it kind of depends. Gotcha. So it's definitely very specific to the individual. And so because you are a professor, can you tell me more about some of the classes that you teach at UF? Yes, I can. I think you might have taken one of my classes. <laughs> Marine ecology, or as it's more broadly termed, marine ecological processes is the full name at the University of Florida, is the main course that I teach, and I teach that to to undergraduates and graduates simultaneously. Graduates have a little bit more of a burden in the class than the undergrads, but the goal of that course is obviously to give a broad overview of, of marine ecology. So that's in the fall, and then in the summertime, I teach a couple of field courses. So I teach field ecology of aquatic organisms. 
And that course is really a fantastic class of field trips is basically what it is. And the idea of that class is to give students an exposure to all of the aquatic environments that we possibly can in a, in a six-week summer course by taking them to ponds and lakes and, and rivers and spring-fed rivers and sheet flow rivers and, and the coastal environments and estuarine environments and marine environments that we can so that they get an idea of what those, the ecology, those, you know, a broad overview of the ecology of those environments, the organisms that live in those environments, not only you know, the crustaceans, of course, which are great, but the fish and the birds and the reptiles and the plants and the plankton and everything else that are in those environments, and then sort of layer on top of that the management of those environments and the management issues in those environments. And then last but not least, I also teach a study abroad class in Cuba called UF in Cuba, Tropical Marine and Island Ecology. And the idea there is to take students from the University of Florida and well elsewhere, we've had students join the course from all over the United States and, and basically give them an exposure to tropical marine and island ecology. So not just in the sea. I, I've co-taught that course with uh, Dr. Luke Flory in the agronomy department and in the past. And so we focus on, on what's happening, the ecology of what's on land and in the water, but all sort of under the umbrella of the, the culture, the history, and the politics of Cuba and the sort of relationships between the U.S. and Cuba and how they drive the ecological environment that you see. Um, and so we do, I do that in the summertime. So those are the three main courses that I teach. All those courses sound pretty good. And for the record of those listening, I did take those courses and I was signed up for the Cuba course, but COVID kind of derailed those plans, but maybe in the future. So I can attest to what Dr. Berenger says. They were all pretty amazing courses. And then also speaking of COVID, can you tell me how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted you, either your life, your research, anything? Sure. So yeah, I mean, it's impacted my life in much the same way that it's impacted everyone's lives, right? I mean, it's impacted what we can do on a day-to-day -day basis safely and, and impacted all the travel plans that we had. And then related to that, it has impacted me professionally because not long after after the, the pandemic started ramping up, the University of Florida, along with you know all the other universities pretty much in the country, shut down and that shut down research operations. And so it's had an impact on, on what we've been able to accomplish from re a research perspective, but it's also had an impact on graduate students. We tried to minimize that as much as possible, but it has had an impact on, on graduate education. The past few months, we've been able to finally sort of start returning to some semblance of normality in the laboratory, getting students permission to be in the lab, of course, with certain restrictions on the number of people and, and, and people wearing masks at all times and limiting interactions in the lab, but getting some lab experiments going again and some field work as well. That's been a bit of a challenge too from a logistical standpoint. And then, of course, any of the international research that I had planned has been completely derailed and is still derailed. And actually, just moments ago, I was writing to the National Science Foundation for an extension to the, uh, one of the research projects we have, because one of its components of that research was supposed to take place in Mexico. And as of right now, it's, it's still not advisable to try and travel internationally for research. So it has disrupted things quite a bit, but hopefully with vaccines coming fast and furious that it won't be long till we'll be able to, to, to get back to full steam when it comes to research and get, get some of those international components of our research back on track. Gotcha. And can you talk about some of your research projects? Sure. So 
right in, in you know in the past you know a big one of course was was the Caribbean spiny lobster and everything to do with this this virus that I discovered that we termed PAV1. Um, so we've done a lot of work on that in the past. Right now, I've had graduate students that are still in, it's involved in some of their research at some, to some extent, but I don't actually have a, an active research grant on that right now. The grants are focused up, the big grant that, that I have right now from the National Science Foundation actually brought my research full circle to, to what I was doing stomping around the, the, the docks and coastlines of Maryland back in, in, in my youth is on blue crabs. And so it's, it's disease ecology in blue crabs. And what we're trying to understand is how blue crabs, which are fascinating animals whose range extends from Maine all the way down throughout the Gulf of Mexico, throughout the Caribbean, all the way down to Argentina. So they have a, we call a trans-hemispheric range. And they're also tracked by a virus across that entire range. Blue crabs get a lot more diseases than spiny lobsters do generally, and so this is one, but one of many viruses they get. But it's fascinating in that it also affects them across this range. And so what we're trying to understand is how that occurs. So how does the the crab and the virus track one another across that huge range? How is it? How is it connected? How is it genetically different? And then of particular interest is how the the host and the pathogen interact in areas where the life history of the blue crab is different. So blue crabs are, are particularly interesting because when the water drops below 10 degrees Celsius, they hibernate, basically. They go down into the sediment, they bury, and they stay in, in the mud over winter, right? And so that occurs where their range it's about probably about Maryland, Virginia, north, and, and somewhere probably in southern Brazil around Uruguay in the southern hemisphere to the south, where the water temperature, the bottom temperature, drops below 10 degrees Celsius. So what we want to try and understand, not only the connectivity of the, the virus and the host across this range, but how does that interact with that winter dormancy, and how does that winter dormancy actually potentially drive the evolution of virulence in the virus. Virulence is just, is, is, is how easily a pathogen is, is how infectious it is between hosts and then the impact that it has on the host, like how quickly it, it impacts the hosts and, and, and ultimately for lethal pathogens, how quickly it kills. So our hypothesis was that in areas to the far north and far south of their range where they essentially hibernate, the virus would, you would hypothesize or we hypothesize that the virus would be less virulent because it would want to stay within the crabs while they were hibernating and not kill them, right? So that when the, the crabs then emerge from their winter dormancy, the virus is still there, can start replicating and start spreading to other crabs. If it killed the crabs during their winter dormancy, well, then in the springtime, when the crabs start to emerge from winter dormancy, all of the crabs that were infected would be gone and they would be relieved from, from this virus. But that's not what we see. The virus is actually there. So we're thinking that the virulence might be lower, but yet in those, in those areas where they hibernate, but in the middle of the range where, they're, where the crabs are active all year round, they don't hibernate, there would be less of an evolutionary drive to reduce virulence because there's always blue crabs around to, for the virus to infect. And so it would, our, we hypothesize that it would be more virulent. So that's part of what, you know, 
those are maybe digging a little bit too, too into the weeds, but what we're trying to understand with that particular project. So we've got to, you know, I, even though my position is, is marine and disease ecology, not every one of my projects is disease related. So one of the other projects that we have right now is, is, is again, focused on Caribbean spiny lobsters, and it's trying to identify what their aggregation cue is. So anybody who lives in Florida and has ever been, been out on a coral reef, or actually pretty much anywhere in the Caribbean, if you've been diving on a coral reef and you've seen spiny lobsters, you probably notice that if you see one, you see more than one. That's because they are gregarious. They gather together under coral heads or under sponges or in you know, big holes in the bottom and they're attracted to one another. And they're attracted to one another, interestingly, from chemical cues in their urine. And that's also what fishermen throughout the Caribbean and in Florida use to catch them. So they, they actually capitalize on the fact that they gather together and are sort of lured to one another to harvest them, right, in different ways throughout the Caribbean. So what we want to try and do is determine what is that cue? So it's a cue that comes in, it's in their urine, but we don't know what the molecule actually is, right? And so if we could determine what that molecule is, we might be able to synthesize that molecule and create an artificial bait, which would make it less environmentally unfriendly to the lobster, I should say, to catch them, because oftentimes the juveniles are used as a social attractant or as a bait to catch the adults that are that are legally landed then. So if we could we could come up with an artificial bait, it might protect those juveniles so that more of them end up growing up and, and becoming adults and then enter the fishery. So that's 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 one big project we're focusing on, the blue crab project. And then we actually are starting a new project on Caribbean spiny lobsters this summer that is a disease related project. And this one is focused on a Nemertian worm, an egg predator, and it's, so it's interesting. It was discovered a few years ago by a colleague of mine, and he and I put this proposal together because what it does is it, it lives within the egg masses of female lobsters that have, that have eggs under their tail and are, are trying to reproduce, and it preys upon those eggs. And so you can imagine that, that has potential consequences for the future of the population and the future of the fishery if you've got a pathogen or a, a parasite, I should say, that's feeding on the eggs before those those eggs become, you know, before they hatch and, and become larvae in the water column. So the, that project is going to try and understand more about that that parasite, the impact that it has on female reproduction, and then the extent to which it's occurring in other places in the Caribbean. Because the one interesting thing about the ecology of Caribbean spiny lobsters is that their populations, even though you might have a population in the Florida Keys, and a population in Mexico, and a population in Cuba, and one in Jamaica, and one in Trinidad, and all the way down the line, those populations are actually interconnected by their larvae. Because when the adult spiny lobsters spawn, and, those, and, and they, they, their eggs hatch, those, those larvae spend five to seven months out in the plankton, just circulating around in the Caribbean. You can imagine you can go a long way out in, 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 the, in the big blue ocean in five to seven months. So essentially those larvae are linking all those populations together. They, they're linked in, in, in different ways based on the currents in the Caribbean, but they're one sort of big giant population in the Caribbean. So, so it's important particularly to bring that full circle to this project is for, for the population in Florida for us to understand what might be happening in Mexico or in Belize because the larvae that are produced by females in those countries are potentially the larvae that end up coming to Florida and being future adult lobsters that we have here. So we also want to know 
what that 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 egg predator worm is doing in these other places in the Caribbean. Gotcha. So you definitely focus on some of the lesser known research. I don't know how to explain it, but like I feel like with a lot of research, you don't really talk about diseases and stuff, especially now because all we're talking about is COVID. Yeah, I mean, I I I think I I think when it comes to disease ecology, I actually just finished editing a a book for Oxford University Press called Marine Disease Ecology, and and one of the reasons we we did that we we put that book together was because disease ecology in the marine environment has really come into its own over the past couple of decades and I think has become a major focus for research and the, and the amount of research studies going on in the, in the marine environment focused on diseases has increased dramatically. So even though generally speaking or relative to COVID right now in the news, marine diseases might not be getting top billing, they are as far as science more broadly and, and marine science specifically, it is kind of a big deal. And you know, most folks probably that think about diseases that study marine organisms probably are, are, are very much familiar with the diseases that affect corals and coral reefs, right? And that's a big issue right now, particularly in, in Florida, in the Florida Keys and throughout the Caribbean where stony coral tissue loss disease is a major problem and it's devastating coral reefs. So, yeah, diseases are a big thing, and I think they're getting a lot more attention and the attention that they deserve because of their role as, as not only essentially – the decline of some organisms like coral reefs, but also their importance in communities as functional members of not just marine communities, but terrestrial communities as well. Okay. Thank you for telling me about all of that. And then kind of moving forward. So you've clearly accomplished a lot in your profession and where you are today. And it's quite admirable how much you've accomplished. Can you tell me three people who have helped you get you to where you are today? Sure. I think it's an easy one, actually. I like my father first and foremost, right? He was a scientist. He was a chemist. But I think from, from early on instilled in me that interest in science generally. You know, there's always that Scientific American magazine on the coffee table when I was a kid to thumb through. So he was definitely probably my, my, my first inspiration. And then probably the, the other two people that have been most inspirational to me, most supportive of me, was my PhD advisor, Mark Butler, who was at Old Dominion University where I got my degree and is now actually at Florida International University, of course, was very influential, very supportive. We still collaborate. We just published a paper a few weeks ago together. And then lastly, my wife, right? So my wife and I met in graduate school, as a lot of graduate students do. She was working on her master's degree at Old Dominion University when I was working on my PhD degree. And so, yes, she has been very influential and very supportive. And, you know, one of the big reasons we ended up at University of Florida is I had a job offer and she was supportive of, of, of me, you know, her sacrificing her career so that I could pursue mine. And so those three people, yes, most certainly had everything to do with why I am where I am today. And then is there anything that you wish you had known before you began starting this career path or maybe advice you could give to your earlier self? You know, I think I would just say, you know, that you shouldn't doubt yourself and that you, you know, that it sounds corny, you can do whatever you want to do. But to some extent, if you're willing to put in the work and the effort, you know, you really can. And, and with some dogged determination that you should stick with with what you love and don't pursue things that you that that you don't love you want to like what you do and you don't want to pick a career based on money 
because I mean I think that's the end. I mean I if, if I couldn't imagine, and I say this quite often, you know, because I don't get up in the morning dreading work, right? I I, I love what I do, and and being a college professor and being a a researcher, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. And and I know there are people out there that that do get up in the morning and don't like what they do, and and some that chose the careers that they chose based on money and they hate what they do. That you really need to choose something that you that you enjoy and that fulfills you, so that that you know I think that's what would bring happiness, not money. Right. If you really like what you do, you don't really work a day in your life, do you? That's that 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 would be my hope for everybody is that they have a career like that. <laughs> And then I guess wrapping up this podcast, do you have anywhere our listeners can connect with you online? Sure. I mean, BehringerLab.com is is my lab website where you can see or, or read about and see a lot of the projects that we have going on. And there's links to you know various things on that site, to conferences and what my students have going on, because that would probably be the best place to find me. I think my my email address is is there on that website. So if you have any questions, feel free to dig in. There's also links to a lot of different papers that we've published over the years that are there if you're interested in, in, in reading more about the research specifically. Thank you for listening to our State of the Scientific Enterprise during COVID-19 series on the Streaming Science Podcast. Make sure to follow and reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, and Buzzsprout. For more information about research at UF and IFAS, visit the link in the show notes. We would love to conduct more of these interviews and grow this series to include a variety of scientists' voices and perspectives. If you're interested in participating, please email us at streamingscience1 at gmail.com. That's streamingscience1, the number one, at gmail.com. I'm your hostess, Caroline Barnett, and thanks for listening.